You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Beltway Beef podcast. Today, I'm joined by David Schuler, and he is a rancher in Nebraska. And David, we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. If you could just start by giving us a little bit of your background and, and your background in the industry and, and why you chose to go back to the family's ranch. Yeah, so I'm a third generation Red Angus seed stock producer here in the panhandle of Nebraska. I grew up on this ranch. I, it's always been near and dear to my heart. It's like my fifth family member between me and my sister and the ranch and my mom and dad. And then I went to college for four and a half years at the University of Nebraska. I uh, was an animal science major, and then I returned immediately back to the family operation. Uh, and for the last three years, I've been acclimating myself to make the roots that I have here. And it's been fun to see the challenges that brings up of returning right away to the family operation. But I really enjoy it. I enjoy getting to talk to people like you and then and share the story that we have, as well as marketing Red Angus cattle, which I'm quite partial to. And so you touched a little bit on some of the challenges that come along with deciding to go back to your family's ranch. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you faced and, and other young producers deciding to go back to the operation have also faced? Right. So in the generation we have going to college and, and returning back, we almost build lives at our college environment. I was College was really good for me. I, I made a lot of good friends. Uh, the classes I took were great and it was six, seven hours away from where I live. So returning back to the operation, leaving that life I built there back home was a big challenge. And I think a lot of people my age feel that challenge. But what we don't see hindsight 2020 is how our lives don't end once we leave college. It just only begins and using those resources that our friends come with us when we come back home and they visit us and, and have that network that we've built to utilize you know, being a farmer and rancher. And for me personally, that's been really cool the last three years to act with myself. It was a big challenge, but at the end of the day, I'm very thankful to be here and have the ability to come back to my family operation. Uh, everyone's situation is different, I guess, when it comes to how that happens. Sometimes we need to increase our diversity on our ranch or farm to allow people to come back home, maybe need a second source of income. But starting that conversation earlier and earlier is, is probably the, the main priority and be honest on how that will happen and how that transition will happen too. So when you talk about generational transfer and, and talk about some of those issues, can we dive into some of those specific things that you've faced or yeah. producers yep. faced? Yeah, so there's problems every day and every state's unique, but our state's biggest problem when it comes down to coming home is our biggest expense is taxes. Uh, it used to be hired hands, it used to be labor, and we've had to transfer all of that money that we went to labor with bigger equipment and, you know, having less people on the ranch, but now our main expense is taxes, whether that's income tax. For Nebraska, we're very heavily dependent on property tax for education, and somehow we need to legislate our way out of that before we get caught in a hole. And on the federal level, we have what is the, the death tax or the inheritance tax. And if you don't have a plan set up in, in real life, um, ready before the, the situation of the transition happen, it could be very scary for that transition to happen. And to take 40% of your assets is just a scary number of, I mean, how do you continue to farm after that or, or ranch after that? And that's, I hope that we can find some way, you know, 2017 was good with the tax cuts to increase um, how much per person we can, where the limits are. But uh, as this new legislative group of people have come into office, I really hope that they know, we did a great job identifying the problem. 
we didn't quite fix it, but we identified that this is an issue, especially to farmers and ranchers with how we're very heavily uh, on the asset side of things to one individual. And I hope that we have the ability um, to continue to make that conversation happen, that this was a problem and they, they identified it. We, if we can just continue to identify that problem for the next four years or eight years, uh, maybe we have a shot at continuing to cut back on this problem or not do more damage than what could happen. Yeah, and so when you're talking about having those conversations in your state, in Nebraska, or having them at the federal level, what are some things that you would say to those lawmakers who may not come from an ag background to help them really understand that, you know, this is a real issue in rural America? Yeah, so I would say there's a huge percentage of the land is going to be coming through inheritance or transfer of sale the next 10, 20 years. I know in Nebraska, 10% of the agricultural land will transfer hands in the next five years. And then NCBA uh, shares that 40% of the land will be transferred in the next 20 years. And with the average age of a farmer and rancher being 57 to 60, this, is, this issue is not just you know, a heavy issue for the individual, but it's gonna be happening a lot for a lot of people across the United States, not just you know, over time, but specifically in the next four to eight years, there's gonna be a huge change in how the inherited land goes to the next generation. And that's what I would share to them is that like, this isn't just, you know, an issue that's been around for a while. This issue is going to balloon way faster and harder than it has for the last 10 years in the next 10 to 20. And that's what I'd share with them and just sharing our story of how we, you know, work so hard our entire lives. Our parents and grandparents work so hard to have their operations work. You know, we're working 40 hours a week by Wednesday and then we continue on the rest of the week. We don't stop then in the blood, sweat and tears that go into it. Um, sharing that story of how, the backwood of America has a dire situation on our hands if we are just allowed the opportunity to be capitalistic, hardworking Americans. That's all we ask, really is, and how we cannot be um, hindered from that American dream that we've worked so hard for so far. Right. And, you know, we've said time and time again at NCBA, no matter what happens in the tax base, NCBA and, and folks in DC are working on both sides of the aisle to make sure that the budget isn't being balanced on the backs of, of farmers and ranchers, that we have fair and mm -hmm. equitable tax code, um, that we can make sure that, you know, folks who are taking over the family ranch and, and looking at generational transfer, that that's a process that can happen mm -hmm. so that that legacy in that farm can continue. But, you know, you, you touched on a lot of what you would say and, and how you would say it. And it just reminded me that you know, the most effective tool in advocacy and lobbying is producer voices. I think, you know, we've, we say it time and time again, that we have a team of lobbyists and, and team of folks in DC that are working real hard, but the most powerful tool is people like you who are actually on the ground every single day telling your story. And, and I know that you do that all the time on many different levels, whether it be chatting with college students or through your cow art, which I definitely want to talk about, <laughs> or through advocating through different um, associations that you're involved in. But could you just talk a little bit about advocacy on all levels and, and how folks right. get involved? Right. So in college, it's almost shoved down our throats that we need to be, you know, share our story and share your family story before you share the facts and all that. And we're kind of getting it in college and high school through our FFA programs, but we need to realize it's a long-term fight or a long-term battle, if you may. And being a part of multiple conversations through social media, through your day-to-day -day activity, like every time I'm on, an, I'm on an airplane, I like to wear my cowboy hat, I like to dress the way I would go to work, you know, dress nice with my cowboy boots and just have a conversation starter about people asking me if I was a real life cowboy. And I love saying, yes, I, I'm a real life cowboy. 
I bet that is a real that story. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I love being such a niche and you know, 50 years ago, it wasn't, you know, and, and before that, I mean, we're, we should be thankful that only one to 2% of the world can feed the rest of it and, and try to feed the rest of it. You know, here in America, we're very thankful for having such a food supply. And, and for me personally, I love sharing ways to get out of the echo chamber. Agricultural people are doing more and more on social media and Instagram, uh, being a part of the community of advocating for agriculture. But we run into this problem that we're almost at an echo chamber where we follow other agriculture producers. And as society in general is becoming that way. But for me, how can we advocate and how can we connect with people outside of echo chambers of the day-to-day -day individuals in the cities that are extremely far away from uh, figuratively, figuratively and literally from how far away they are from agriculture. And for me, that's through my cattle art. What does that process look like? How did you get the idea to do it? Well, it all, I guess it started when I was a kid and we feed our cattle when they're on corn stalks, a haylage and silage ration to make sure they have all the nutrients they need through the winter months. They get all the dry matter they need from the stalks. And we're just making sure they're, they're fit for the winter and throughout into the spring. And it almost cut monotonous during the, the winter as a kid going out there and feeding every day. So I just draw them in circles and feed it on the ground in different shapes and sizes. And I thought one day, if I ever had an airplane, I'm going to take a photo of our brand for Red Angus Seed Socks. So once I became back from college and I was like, dad, I totally need to make our brand with the drone that we just got. So I went out there and on Christmas morning, I drew our fiddleback brand, which is just the, you know, the back of the fiddle. And then we market for our cattle and it kind of took off, had some shares, people were interested in it. And I said, this is something that's a niche market that I can share with a lot of people. So the next year after that, I drew out the word beef. It's what's for Christmas dinner. And that was pretty cool. Got like a hundred shares. Uh, Governor Ricketts shared it here in Nebraska. And I was like, okay, this is, this is something that like could be my niche. And people were asking what I was going to do this year in November. And I had just no idea. And in December, uh, it finally came across to me about five days before Christmas. I'm like, I need to share a thank you to a lot of people that worked really hard this year through the pandemic. And I was like, first responders, doctors, nurses, people that we know personally that are helpers of our ranch. You know, they have husbands and wives who are part of the, the, the first responding group. And we want to share thanks to them from the backbone of America to the heartbeat of America. Thank you. So I just drew out an EKG with a heart and all 650 of my cows lined up so perfectly. I got them trained right now. Next year, we're going to try different fonts. It's going to be great. Uh, and they were in the perfect shape. And I made a video, put it on Facebook and said, you know, you are the real MVPs from the backbone of America. These farmers and ranchers, we want to say thanks to you for being up front and being the first responders to an incredible situation. And we, were, we relied on you so much, thank you. And the next thing you know, it was getting shared across America. And I think it had like 250 shares that night. And then by Christmas morning, it had 2000 shares, some news articles. I mean, I was doing interviews for local TV stations talking about you know the explanation of it. And they'd never seen something like this before. I had explained to them step-by-step step what was going on and that was cool. And by the day after Christmas, ABC News New York contacted me and say, hey, can we run this on all of our sister stations and put on ABC this morning? I said, absolutely. You know, this is exactly who I wanted to get to. And that was the coolest part. Like my message got to the people I wanted it to, the doctors, nurses, EMTs, first receivers, and, you know, people from Miami, Houston, New York, Providence, Bismarck, Seattle, Sacramento, you name it. All those cities, there's people contacting me on Facebook through our email saying, thank you, you know. We're starting our shifts tonight and we just saw this. We shared it with these people in the hospital and we just want to say thank you for looking out for us. And we really felt that connection. And that's when I first got it. This is, this is outside the echo chamber. This is what, you know, every day 
uh, cattlemen and farmers and ranchers are alike. And that was just the coolest part. And I was really humbled by it. And I mean, that's up to like 15,000 shares and a million views now and hope they're all asking what I'm going to do next year, but I think I'm just going to let this soak in for a little bit longer. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I know that I'm very excited and I'm one of those people asking what you're going to do next year. <laughs> but I think hearing you talk about that brings up another really good point that I think sometimes, whether it's the general public or lawmakers, don't always necessarily get. And I think it's that cattle producers and, and people involved in agriculture are also really involved in their communities and are people mm -hmm. that want to contribute to those communities and, and want to be an active player and, and involved. And so I think, you know, taking care of rural America, making sure that farmers have legislation that allows them to be productive farmers, that allows them to be successful farmers, really helps benefit those rural communities and those rural economies as well, because you guys play such a big part in those. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe intimidating to get involved in your community at first, but taking that first step to be a part of your, you know, Cattlemen's College for me in Nebraska or our, your county Cattlemen's Board, those are really awesome opportunities to meet people that would be mentors for you while you're back home, to um, think of productive ways to be a part of society. And I would love, I would love to see rural America be the blueprint for how America can be productive and have conversations again. And that's something that's our niche. And I think we should share that, that we are a community that may not always agree, but I think rural communities are the best at um, explaining themselves and, and having those conversations that came for what they believe in. Um, that could be a blueprint for all Americans on any kind of club they're a part of, political or not political. Well, I think that that's some really good advice for everyone and for folks returning to the farm and, and people in rural America. Um, but David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I think just having this conversation with you and, and hearing some of the, the challenges that you're facing as you come back to the farm, but also just the genuine optimism that you have about being involved in agriculture and, and being part of that, you know, 2% that's feeding the world um, mm -hmm. is really awesome to hear and, and just appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Well, I just I, thank you so much. I mean, I just think about my great great aunt Opal, who you know homesteaded this land. Fifty years before she was born, she her family came over in covered wagons, and fifty years later, she saw people land on the moon. And just thinking about what that's going to be for us, and that's why I'm so optimistic, because we have things that we have never even experienced yet to be a part of it. And I'm I'm amped for it. I'm jacked. Hope to be a part of it. Well, that's awesome. Well, we hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Um, but until then, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify at Beltway Beef, also on Twitter at Beltway Beef. We'll see you next time.